To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up that which is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to get, and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away, a time to rend, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time of war, and a time of peace. Very familiar words, and all pointing to what I want to talk about tonight, which is the subject of impermanence. Impermanence is not a doctrine or a belief system. It's a law of nature. Sometimes hearing about this orientation towards impermanence, yoginis will try to apply it too quickly. In other words, hear it as a principle, as a belief, and then be with something that is difficult and wondering why isn't it going away? I've heard that everything is impermanent when we're applying it as a belief and not knowing it in our bones. And in Dharma practice, we know the deepest of truths within. We know the deepest of truths in our bones. We hear the teaching, and we hear it, of course, through our intellect. And then we allow it to sink down because of our own experiences in life. The Buddha was said to be neither an optimist nor a pessimist, neither optimistic nor pessimistic, but actually realistic. And this is what we are delving into seeing in our lives, in bringing mindfulness, awareness into our life, is what is real. It doesn't have to do with good or bad. It has to do with seeing clearly for ourselves how things are. It is so vital, essential, to impress impermanence on the heart. Because if we do, then it is possible for us to respond with sensitivity, to respond accordingly, instead of pretending that things are other than the way that they are. We can understand gradually, slowly, gently, the teachings of impermanence, making it possible to respond and to let go over and over again. Our practice, of course, has everything to do with understanding the laws of nature, the laws of nature as expressed everywhere in this world, as expressed in what we call nature, trees and birds and flowers, as expressed in other people, and very much as expressed in our own experience in our life. 
understanding ourselves to be part of nature, understanding ourselves to be nature itself, not separated, not alienated. We try to understand the laws of nature we're oriented in this way as a way to live in harmony instead of constantly finding ourselves struggling. That's the reason why the whole teaching of the Buddha is the teaching of suffering and the end of, stu- of suffering. So we don't want to try to understand impermanence as something that is elsewhere, something that is just an idea. But we want to see it clearly over and over again and ever more deeply for ourselves so that we can live in alignment, in harmony, instead of looking forward to an endless life of struggle. Our practice is developing some degree of calm, some degree of calm and steadiness, so that with this calmness, with this steadiness, we have the chance of being able to see more deeply into how things are. When the mind is fragmented and disengaged and all over the place, we may still have the aspiration to see into. We may really want to, but we're not equipped to. We're not able to because there isn't a wholeness within. And so some degree of calmness, of steadiness is cultivated, is appreciated, is developed. And then with that degree of calmness, right here and right now, we look we see for ourselves, as if we were the very first being to see. Now, this is always pioneerist work. As if we were the very first to see, each of us looking on our own, waking up. Making peace with change and using impermanence as a doorway, kind of as a, a Dharma doorway, into what the heart yearns for. Without this understanding, struggle is the result because we are trying to pin everything down. We're trying to make everything stay still when it's constantly moving and out of our control, trying to make it stay the same, thinking that we can control what cannot be controlled finding ourselves lost in resistance. In our lives, and this is what we could say a life is, there are always invitations to see. We could look at our life in this way. Instead of ups and downs and the good and the bad and what we like and what we don't like, what we want and what we don't want, over and over again, this cycle that we can find ourselves in. Instead, we can step outside or step back and look at life as a constant series of invitations to see. The story of the Buddha waking up first had to do with the Buddha leaving the palace. And his story, as 
most of you know is that he was in a very protected and comfortable place in the palace. And then leaving the palace and discovering what are called the heavenly messengers. And they don't look so so heavenly when we first encounter them or hear about them. They sound the opposite. But the heavenly messengers that the Buddha came upon, first of all, he came upon someone who was sick. I don't know how, but he hadn't really seen anyone up till that point. This is a myth. He was, he was quite old at this time. He was older at this time to not, not see anybody sick. But anyway, saw a sick person. And then he saw somebody that was old and Again, it's a myth. How could he have avoided this? But he did. Um, He saw an old person. And then, as well, a third person that he saw, he saw somebody who was dead, lying by the side of the road, a corpse. And then, he was totally, at this point, disappointed and bummed out. And then, he saw a practitioner, the fourth heavenly messenger, he saw a practitioner. And when he saw these different beings, a sick person and an extremely old person and a dead person, there was a way in which it really affected him, affected his heart very deeply. And you could say that it was a wake-up call. You could say that it was the beginning of the Buddha's awakening, was right then and there with the reality of life impressing itself on his heart in a fresh way, a new way, way that he hadn't seen before. So we could say that heavenly messengers are anything that wakes us up in life, that the heavenly messengers are what wake us up. And with this waking up, there is a reordering of our priorities Whenever we come in contact with the realities of life, that which we oftentimes do try to deny and pretend is not happening and avoid, whenever we come in contact with a sensitive and open heart, it helps us to ask what is truly important in our lives, what really does matter for us. These questions that offer us a path Without these questions, we don't really have a path. But these kinds of questions really offer us a certain path and a certain direction. For the Buddha, obviously, the fourth messenger is what mattered. You know, seeing somebody who was practicing, who had a radiance about them, who was very light and very joyful, you know, that was a, a real... Um, messenger for him, and he saw that this is the messenger that really matters. He saw the difficulties in life, and then as well, he caught a glimpse of possibility as well. He caught a a glimpse of this, and he saw this is what I want to dedicate my life to. This is what matters to me, not my old life of comfort and of being praised and of being admired and of being a prince and getting to order other people around and things that might sound really good to us sometimes. This 
he began to see was not his heart's desire. It's not what he wanted to dedicate his life to because he already saw the end of that kind of life. You know, that it was really only going in the direction of old age, sickness, and death. And he vowed at that point to find the deathless, you know, to dedicate his life to alleviating his own suffering in the service of alleviating the suffering of others. He formed this very strong sense of dedication at that point. We have our own heavenly messengers. Our path is the Buddhist path. It's no different. And so relating to what occurs in life, looking deeply at the invitations that we receive, and seeing if we can use these invitations as a way to see more deeply into change. The heavenly messengers come in our everyday life, and of course, we get very strong heavenly messengers in times of great loss or in times of great change in our lives. I've always been quite interested in those um, tables that one sometimes sees about stress levels and how to buy a new house or to be in a new relationship, there's a lot of stress in that. You would think that to not have a house and to be in a not a relationship if you wanted it, or a bad relationship would be much more stress. But you get all these stress points for things that are good, too, for positive things. So times of great loss and times of great change as well. In our everyday life, it's so interesting. As we get older, this is something that we sometimes can see a little bit more clearly, but it doesn't matter how old we are because you can be an old soul, so to speak, when you're quite young. But certainly experiences in life impress this upon us. I think of, you know, those who don't know anything about Dharma know something about change if they're at a certain age because of seeing so much through their lives. But sometimes one gets the chance to see change when you're coming back to a place over and over again. I don't know, for some of you who have been coming to the women's retreat for many years now, I'm sure you've seen many, many changes. Just coming back once a year, and this is, this is the same, and it's my home, and it's wonderful, and there's this little change. They did this, you know, while I was away. How could they without consulting me? You know? Seeing the change in coming back to the same situation. Walking around the loop has been such an interesting uh, way to, for me to um, observe change throughout all these years because I've been coming to Barry either on retreat or teaching for many, many years at this point. And so walking around the loop over and over again, over the years, so unbelievably awakening in terms of noticing the changes that that have happened over the years. Many years ago, I was here for a six-month self-retreat, and I have to back up a bit before I tell you what happened. When I was um, in college, I I went to college for piano, and um, I grew up playing the piano, from when I was really, really young, 
I made my mother try to teach me some notes when I was maybe four or five, so I had a very strong aspiration, really strong karma with the piano. And I played a lot. I played to, um, I played to comfort myself. I played because I loved it. Um, I played when I was happy. I played when I was unhappy. It was a wonderful, um, wonderful discipline, a wonderful joy in my life. And so I ended up deciding to go to college for, for piano. And I dropped out of school after a couple of years of going to school for piano. I mean, it was the normal college. I'm making it sound like just piano school. It was n- normal college with piano <laughs> as the major. <laughs> But I dropped out after a couple of years because I was feeling confined by the structure and I wanted to do something else. I was very interested in a number of spiritual paths at that point and I wanted to dedicate myself to that. And I I also wanted just to hitchhike around the country (laughs) and not have to go to school. But anyway, I stopped playing the piano at that point. I was in situations in my life where there wasn't room for a piano. I mean, even physically, I was often in very small rooms or way up a flight of stairs. There's just no, no way I could play a piano. Every so often when I found one, and I, I played classical music, every so often when I found one, I would try to play a little bit and enjoyed it, but just really let it go you know, and, and lost most of what I knew. And um, so cut to you know many, many, many years later, walking around the loop by myself in the middle of February on this six-month retreat, and nothing different for a few days, nothing different, just walking around the loop, enjoying it. One day, I am walking around the loop, and I don't know if you know that house that has all the things outside of it. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that has, I'm sure it's owned by very different people now, but many years ago, it still kind of had that same karma to it, because Nothing was really there in terms of um, of the trailer that's there now, but there was people would dump things there. So walking around the loop, one day a piano, <laughs> a piano had been dumped the night before. Someone had actually left a piano there, and you know I, I wasn't taking it overly personal. At the same time, it wasn't a trumpet, it was an oboe. <laughs> no. It wasn't a harmonica. It was a piano, you know? <laughs> so I thought I could just learn. Every time I, I walked by, I just kind of woke up a little bit more. If I was in a daydream or lost in my mind or something like that, every time I saw that piano, I would be struck. What's the piano doing there? Does it mean anything? Is it significant? Is it for me? You know? And I would be tempted to go over and, and play a little bit. It was on its side, and it was certainly not a... S- <laughs> it, was certainly, it was certainly not a Steinway. I mean, it was not that big of a piano and not in the best of shape, but it looked fine to play, so I would use wise restraint and you know just keep on walking by. But every day, and remember, I was there for six months in, in Barry weather, you know? So I got to watch the decay of this piano. It takes a long time, even in really bad weather, for a piano to decay. Really long time. I actually can't remember how long. I mean, it probably took some years until it was a pile of wood. You know? Some time of coming back and checking it out over and over again 
you know, is it still there? Is it gone? You know, as if it meant anything. But it, it was it was so interesting to uh, observe the decaying, you know, of something that had been enormously significant for me in my life. This same around this same time, uh, going around the loop, I also observed um, from time to time. There's a an older couple that used to live in one of the houses around the loop. And I would notice, and they were older some years ago, I would notice that um, the, the husband, I guess, had a garden of flowers. And I would see him um, tending his flowers and then sometimes gathering them up. You know how you go around the loop and different things are happening. So sometimes I'd see him in his garden tending the flowers, Sometimes I'd see him gathering the flowers up, and I was thinking, well, you know, he's bringing them to his wife, and it's this this really lovely um, love story. And I was really quite charmed by it. Yeah, it was it was really really kind of a nice thing to see over and over again. And then at another point, um, fairly recently, finding out that the husband had died, and that the wife is there on her own, and just just hoping somebody was still bringing her flowers. But you know, it really, it really was so poignant for me when I saw this. Uh, you know, and now the, there's no the garden is gone. You know, uh, no no vegetables, no flowers in the garden. Whereas once it had been really a thriving place, really a place of great beauty. It's different now. There's a house around the loop that um, a friend of of um, ours here had built. A certain, at a certain point. So during one three-month retreat, all these guys on the roof building the house, waving to the yogis. It was kind of part of everybody's excitement to go around the loop and see how much the house had been built and, you know, every, everybody waving to each other and very friendly. And so it was built. And then watching, this was probably 20 years ago that we watched this house be built. And then watching it decay, watching the friend move away, get involved in other things, and the grass grew, and it looked very desolate. And now just um, just last February when I was here uh, at the Forest Refuge on retreat, walking around, and there's a family there with two really cute kids who are out in the yard a lot and say hi to you and, you know... I, I didn't see them this time, but I don't know if they're out there. But they're so adorable because they're, they, you know, the, the whole family once kind of got together as a, as a picture postcard, and they all waved to me and said hi. <laughs> I thought it was so great. So, you know, there was this life, and, and then there was the decay, um, noticing the decay, and then there was the, this wonderful life happening again. So just noticing the change. And I'll tell you, I, I have too many dog stories to go into about around the loop, so I'll just I'll just tell you a very small one, which is um, encountering a, a little dog where the pond is, the house across from the pond, the one that looks like a gingerbread house. Yeah, um, they're they've had a number of different dogs over the years, and this one little dog named Echo. Um, the reason I know that his name was Echo is because he used to follow me around, around the loop. And someone told me I was scared that he would get hit by a car, and I didn't know what to do. And someone told me that you just, with the dog, that you want to go home, you just say, go home. You know. So I thought that was great, and I tried it out. And I was way, way around the loop, this little dog following me way far away. And I turned around and said, go home. And the dog went. 
No? Which, you know, I guess is what dogs do, but I was really surprised and delighted. <laughs> I felt so powerful, you know? <laughs> but I knew, I knew the dog's name because um, at another point before I had this information, I found this little dog out by the cars, and so I was really concerned. So I went back to the house, the gingerbread house, and knocked on the door and said, you know, have you lost their dog? And they said, oh, yes, Echo always, you know, wanders and moves around. But anyway, Echo, the dog I had all this success with, later, uh, over the years, just noticing him get old, you know, yeah, still just just kind of this this kind of um, stubborn spirit to him. Um, He would growl at really big dogs, and you'd wonder, you know, where the wisdom was. But he was just gradually changing, gradually getting old, you know, and I think he's still alive, but, um, but dogs around the loop. The weather, just to notice the weather, you know, I mean, it is remarkable to live in New England because we do get to allow the weather to reflect our minds. I lived in Florida for some amount of time, a long time ago, and it's, it was always sunny. It was so insulting. Because, um, you know, you felt bad, you felt depressed, you felt like this or that. It was always sunny. Here, things change, you know? In New England, it's a grace that we have this exposure of our minds that we get to see um, that the weather is changing all the time, and particularly in Barrie. You know, it's the hottest place in the world. It's the coldest place in the world. It can snow and hail in, in one week and then be... 70 degrees, 80 degrees sometimes. I remember a day in February wearing no shoes, no, no socks on my feet and running around because it was that hot, just that one day. And then, of course, you know, 25-foot blizzard the next day. You know, nothing to count on. But just observing, you know, being in, in context of observing and noticing the weather. Being aware of governments, you know? I mean, when we don't like the way the government is, we know it's going to change. Maybe we would prefer it to change sooner, but we do know that change does happen with our relationships, yeah? I mean, just, just sometimes looking and reflecting on our relationships and noticing how many times friends have become um, either difficult people for us or just people we're not so close to. You know, friends becoming enemies and enemies becoming friends. Sometimes we notice this in meta practice by how we're putting people in different categories. <laughs> you know? One day they're our beloved, the next day we've had a fight, they're in the enemy category. You know? I mean, just, just to be aware of this. Internally, of course, observing the body, noticing getting older, noticing the changes that occur, noticing the times when we get sick, and taking this on as an invitation, as a heavenly messenger. Of course, noticing our minds, noticing that the state of our minds changes from moment to moment. It's very interesting sometimes just to take note of the mental state that is occurring when you begin a walk a walking session, and then take note of the mental state that is occurring at the end of the walking session. And just to notice if it's the same or if it's different. Or forget about a whole session, just from one length. You know? Is it different when you're here than when, you're, when you've gone your 20 paces? What has happened? You know, what has occurred in the mind? 
In impressing impermanence on the heart, we learn not to cling. We don't learn this by telling ourselves we should learn it. We learn it by being in contact with impermanence. We allow ourselves to to learn this so that the clinging drops away because we know that the clinging is suffering. The Buddha said, whatever has the nature of arising has the nature of ceasing. Whatever has the nature of arising has the nature of ceasing. So clearly this means all phenomena, all conditioned phenomena. We can see that when we cling, when we try to hold on to that which cannot be held on to, nobody's done it. It's not possible. The result of this is suffering. Whatever our preferences, things change. And this is an impersonal process. It's not a personal insult. In seeing impermanence ever more clearly, a disenchantment takes place. We find that the impermanent ceases to satisfy in quite the same way. It's not as interesting. It's not as fascinating. It doesn't pull us in in quite the same way. We're not looking for lasting happiness in the impermanent. So we can enjoy from moment to moment what is occurring without trying to get something that it can't offer us out of it. We can let go and we can enjoy. It actually allows for a greater degree of enjoyment because we're letting go of that sorrow and that pain, that anticipation of in our heart of hearts knowing that it's going to end and instead allowing ourselves to be more present and relaxed with it. We don't have to be able to see into impermanence. All we have to do is to challenge permanence because we do oftentimes believe in permanence. So the idea is not to believe in permanence. To ask ourselves, what are we leaving out? Oftentimes we have this this sense, well, everything is impermanent except for this. And what is the this? What is the this? that we believe to be permanent. And all of us have a this. So to try to find out what that might be is very illuminating because that's the edge of our practice. If we can see this, then we can also open and gradually allow for a letting go to occur. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.